0: about 10 or 11 years old, my grandmother, she invited me to go to the Arkansas Diamond Mines. Anybody ever been there? Ever even heard of it? It's a place, it's a real place. You're supposed to go and try to find diamonds in just this regular field, looks like a plowed up cotton field or something. I didn't know what it was at the time, I was just excited to go anywhere because she said I could invite my best friend in the whole world, my cousin Derek. We were the same age and... And uh, I guess I guess we were about eleven, ten or eleven at the time, and so I just I was just glad to go out of town, you know. But back then we weren't like these kids; we didn't have all these games to play and stuff, you know, and keep us busy. Now they did. Probably, you go, I'm gonna stay here and play this or something, you know. But we were excited to get in a car, even, you know. We just <laughs> let's go somewhere, you know. <laughs> we're just tired of playing outside, so we drove there and we got there that night and uh, checked in the hotel. We ate something and and guess what? How many? Of you how many of you have heard some of my vacation stories? <laughs> well, that night, I started barfing. I don't know, it just... I started throwing up and threw up all night long. And uh, my grandmother, you know, she had heard that milk is good for your stomach, to, you know, to settle your stomach. And... uh <laughs> I had already been diagnosed with childhood uh, ulcers, which is kind of rare, but I guess that's a result of being a perfectionist even in my early days because <laughs> that's where perfectionism will lead you when you've got to have everything your way. <laughs> you're not getting it, and you're going to stay upset. So I had, even as a kid, I was I had like a uh, ulcers. So she decided to give me some milk. She said, man, this will soothe your stomach. So I drank um, she bought a big old gallon of milk, and we were. she was trying to get me ready to go to the diamond mines because she, she had dollar signs showing in her eyes. You know, It was like casino to her or something. You know, She was ready to go. <laughs> but anyway, I drank the milk, and for some reason, I just kept throwing up all night. I woke up the next morning. She said, here, get some more milk. <laughs> You're not drinking enough milk. So I drank milk all day and all day, the same result. And my poor cousin, my grandmother said, well, I, th- I guess you could be here by yourself. Me and his name was Derek. Me and Derek are going to go to the mines, and he was like, "No, me, me, I'm going to stay here with guy. I'm just going to stay here with guy. It ain't right." And I was like, "That's my buddy. He, he was my same age, you know, and he was just a little slighter build, you know, and I was kind of meaner and tougher and better at sports than he was, but he was the one, you know, kind of looked up to me and everything, but he was a good sidekick, you know. And so he stayed with me all day, and we was only going to be there one more day. So about that afternoon, I just got tired of drinking milk, and I got tired of throwing up milk, and I just said, I can't do no more, Mimi, and so I stopped drinking it, and so for that night, guess what? I stopped throwing up. And so we started making plans to go to the diamond mines on our last day. And sure enough, we got up early the next morning, and I was feeling good. And we went to the diamond mines, and we got out on our hands and knees and started digging. We had these little shovels we had bought, you know. And there were other people out there, believe it or not. And, and we started, me and Derek started finding these little diamonds. At first, they were just little bitty ones, you know. But they were shining, Sure enough. And I was like, I was showing, me. we started getting excited, so we was looking and looking. By, the, by lunchtime, I had a whole pocket full of diamonds. I just knew I was going to be the richest kid in all of Whitehaven, Mississippi, or Whitehaven, Tennessee. <coughs> and uh, so when we took him up to the office, guess what happened? I'll tell you later. Because we got to get to this word, guys. I done got myself into something, I don't know how we're going to get it through tonight. Um, the message is entitled, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. I thought, well, I'll just talk some basics about how to read the Word of God for all it's worth, you know, and, and understand it in the context that it was written and all that. And man, I got to thinking about all the things that that entails, and I could go on for months. So this is just a complete overview, so bear with me if I don't get to everything, but we're going to talk about some of the main things. Second Timothy is our start and launch in Scripture. 2 Timothy. And we're going to start in the 2nd chapter, 15th verse. In the King James, it says, study, there's your first key, study to show thyself approved unto God. A Workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, man there's so much in that scripture we could just park there all night, you know how we should study, how should we should want to be approved unto God, that we're called to be workmen, not restmen, not sitteth on our buhaniman <clears throat> but rightly dividing. The word of truth. What does that mean? It means when you're, when you're looking in, what is the word of truth? The word of God. Word of God. <laughs> so when you're looking into the word of God, how do you keep from getting off base? Because you see some wackadoo stuff out there. Ain't that right, Gary? That, don't mind if I use your word again. There is some wackadoo thoughts out there about some interpretations of the Bible. And it, it doesn't sound like the truth at all to me. And, and I believe in many cases it's not. Even though they may be coming out of the scriptures, their interpretation is what I could do. So tonight we're going to have a very basic discussion on how to rightly divide the word of truth. And I hope that's not assuming too much. Because today's society, a lot of even Christians don't even bother to divide the word anymore. Don't even carry a Bible, don't, you know. Don't even look at a Bible. They, well, we got a screen, you know, and they only look at the Bible maybe on Sundays when they come or Wednesdays if they happen to drop by. Well, that's not right, you know. You feed your body three times a day. You need to feed your spirit. Your sp- you want your spirit, man, to get bigger and healthier, don't you? So anyway, I'm going to back up just for a moment, and we'll discuss the need for daily study and meditation. Let's t- well, let's talk about the Word of God and what it is and can it be trusted. I know you all know this, but the Bible was written over a 1,600-year period by approximately 40 different men. So it took 1,600 years to write this. It's a lot of writing, but my goodness. (laughs) But it was done over different periods of time, and it was compiled later. It was 40 different guys who wrote the Word of God, and uh, the earliest writings were recorded somewhere around 1,500 before Christ, and the latest writing to make the book was uh, after his death about 100 years later. Uh, the Bible is one book, but it's 66 smaller books within it. But the thing about it is and only God could do this with 40 different writers. Can you imagine getting 40 different people to agree on anything or to do anything in the same heart or mind or one accord? 40 different writers over 1,600 years. It's a seamless book. It has one theme from start to to finish. In the Old Testament, it's Jesus Christ concealed. In the New Testament, it's Jesus Christ revealed. The whole thing is the Word of God, and we know that the Word of God is Jesus's thoughts. He is the Word of God, it tells us in uh, John. So anyway, uh, it wasn't divided up into chapters. You know, I just said go to Uh, 2 Timothy, what did I say? 2 Timothy chapter 2? Well, it wasn't even divided up into chapters until uh, the year 1238. And then it was another 300 years before it was put into verses. It was just chapters. Originally, it was written in just one long letter. And that's why, you know, they had it on a scroll or something. Back when Jesus was reading, he would pull the scroll out and he would find the place. He would have to go through it till he found the place where it was written, you know, because it wasn't in chapter or verse as we know it. And that was done later on to give us a better ability to find where we need to go. Um, I wrote that the Bible is God's word. The Bible says over 3,000 times in it, thus saith the Lord. That's pretty awesome, a book that claims to have the voice of God. The Bible is historically accurate. Once again, this is just an overview. We could, talk, we could camp here on each one of these points, but I'm just giving you an overview. There were several secular historians who wrote about the events of the New Testament at the same time that the Bible was being written, the same time that Jesus was you know, in Jerusalem and was crucified and so forth. Josephus is the most well-known among them. Tacticus was a Roman historian who would, who would have no benefit from not telling the truth both of these men as well as, you know, countless others can be used to back up the historical accuracy of the Bible. What I'm telling you is secular, not Christians, not people trying to, you know, have an agenda wrote about the crucifixion of Jesus, wrote about the resurrection of Jesus, and all the things that the Bible says happened were backed up by secular historians. Um, the prophecies of the Bible, for example... Uh, It's said that over 3,200 prophecies in this book have already come to pass. Either within the pages of the Bible itself or since the Bible was written, have come to pass. Uh, What I like to key in on is over 300 of those were Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus, which Jesus already fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies. No man could do that. Some people say, well, you know, he, what he did is he studied the scriptures and then he, you know, lived them out on purpose. Well, you can't, you can't do that when part of the, the prophecies is where you'd be born. If you figured that out or if you figured out how to prophesy, I'm coming back after three days out of the tomb, okay, <laughs> then that's good. And, and in a way, he did work it all out because he's the, he's the word himself. He did arrange to fulfill all these prophecies, just not in the way that they mean. So we have a book whose author is God Almighty. So that right there tells you, man, I know they're selling it down at the dollar store for a dollar, but come on, guys, we got to treat it like it's gold. we got to treat it like it's more, more than gold. 2 Peter 1.20 says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from a prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. In other words, a human didn't think of it. He wasn't doing it for his own, uh, because of his own understanding. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So the very words of this, even though they were written by man, were inspired by prophets of old as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God, God knows what he's doing. You know, I see a lot of the way things are in the Christian church and stuff, and, and uh, a lot of people saying, well, we're not doing it right or whatever. Or, or how do we know? Well, I, I believe that God is able to orchestrate things. <laughs> I believe that if God's make, not making a big deal out of it right now, why are we making a big deal out of it? I believe... <laughs> that God is mostly concerned right now in this age of grace that we live in, this period where we're trying to get people saved before the rapture and before the second coming of the Lord Jesus, I believe his main focus is the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And so when you see people who get a narrow focus on the Bible, they just pick out something and they learn something and then then that's what they stay with or whatever, those people... Can be dangerous. We need a, that's why I'm I'm tr- talking tonight. We need a well-rounded understanding of the Bible. And it all needs to be. Well, we'll talk about it. The Bible was written in three languages: Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And uh I have a Hebrew Bible here. Ryan, I was gonna get you to read it for me. <laughs> no. Nobody in here reads Hebrew or what? <laughs> Thank goodness for translations of the Bible, that they were translated into English for us English-speaking folks, and that's where translation, different translations come from. Today, we depend on Bibles translated into English. There are two predominant theories about how to translate one language into another for the Bible. Um, it's kind of difficult because there's no English words for certain Hebrew words, uh, I understand that the... The Hebrew language is very expressive, maybe Greek as well, and there's, there's not, you know, there's words in there that imply something that you might have to use five English words to get to there. Does that make sense? So you have those who believe in a literal or a word-for-word translation, which would, which would be something similar to the King James is what we would call that. Uh, of course, they used Old English because it was written back and translated back in the 1600s, but... uh. It was closer to a word for word. But even that, they had to use words in italics and stuff to make it make sense for us. And so it's difficult, like I said, because of the, the translation. And then there's the functual, uh, functional equivalence. And uh, their, their idea is to produce, in English, the closest natural equivalent to the message expressed in the original language. Um, in other words, it's more thought for thought than word for word that makes sense. Now, the New Living Translation would be an example of something closer to a thought for thought. They, they see what it means in Hebrew, and they write it down in English trying to mean the exact same thing. Maybe not so much word for word, but as close as they can get it so that it makes sense. And uh, so you have two camps, and, and you know they argue about those things, but I'm certainly not here to argue about the best translations or the, of, the, of the Bible, I typically uh, preach out of the New Living Translation and the King James are the two I stick with, uh, so I get a little bit of both. Uh, I'd advise you to research for yourself and find you a reputable and reliable and suitable translation that you like to read from. Um, You know, know, just make sure it's something that, that has a pretty good reputation. Uh, most of the ones that you'll see uh, that you've heard of probably are suitable translations. Um, but if you see somebody taking it and stamping their name on it and changing verses and stuff to try to make it fit their agenda or something, stay away from anything like that, of course. Mm. Over the centuries, there have been entire nations uh, bent on stomping out the Bible. Let's do away with them. Let's burn them all. Anybody caught with one will be put to death or whatever. But even today, about 50 Bibles are sold every hour somewhere in the world. that's estimated over 5 billion have been sold. The Bible has now been printed in 2,454 languages. Praise the Lord. Take that, devil. Booyah. So you can't stop the Word of God. It'll be here long past <laughs> when you're gone. It was... You know, the ones that tried to stomp it out, you know, they couldn't do it. Isaiah 48 says the, the grass withers and the flowers, flowers fade, but the Word of God, it stands forever. Forever. If God says it, that settles it. I'm going to talk a little bit about the basic layout of the Bible. Now, I'm coming at this like, you know, some people have never read the Bible or you don't read it much, but uh, you start in the, in the Old Testament, you know, everybody knows how, where it starts in Genesis. And the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are called the Pentateuch. Or I don't know if I pre- pronounced that right, but they are thought to be written by Moses. Um, the, the Jewish people still read those five books, and they read the, the prophets and so forth. Then the next 12 books are uh, books of history. You have Ju- Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and, and books like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Those are books about the Jewish history. You learn a lot about the kings and the, whether they were good kings or bad kings. And you, and you see about the uh, prophets that God used to talk to his people and all that. And then we're still in the Old Testament. And then it moves to books of poetry. Uh, you, may have, you may recognize uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then, uh, then you move over into sections, because man assembled the books and put them in in groups uh, as the Holy Spirit led. And then the books of prophecy. You have five major prophets, which you've heard of, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you have 12 minor prophets, and I won't name all of those. But those are prophets who wrote books of the Bible in the Old Testament, ending with the book of Malachi. And right at the end of Malachi, boom, you move into a new covenant. The New Testament. So the Old, Old Testament is made up of those ingredients. The uh, New Testament, a lot of times I like to show them when I'm down at the jail or something, you know, the guys that don't have any experience with the Bible. or And you, you may not have much experience with the Bible. You may have n- never read it much for yourself. But it can be overwhelming when you have one of these big Bibles and you look at all these pages and, and you had not ever been much of a reader or something, you know, and you're like, well, I- I started in Genesis, and I got to Genesis 2, and I just quit. You know, it was just overwhelming. Well, as a new believer, it might be better for you not to start at the beginning. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in, uh, as we go. But the New Testament, let me see, not all of this, the New Testament, a lot of that's concordance and stuff like that. New Testament is about that big. Everybody see that? Not near as big. It's at the end of the Bible. And uh, you got your, your Old Testament, a lot of reading there but not so much in the, in the New Testament. And then if you think about this, you start with four Gospels. And a Gospel, what that means is good news, and it's four accounts of basically the life of Jesus from four different people's perspective, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They each wrote a story uh, detailing what happened in Jesus' life and ministry. And they and if you didn't know it, like the first time I read you know, Matthew, then I started reading Mark. I'm like, I must have got turned around. I'm reading the same thing again. Because it's almost like, but it's four different perspectives. Now now I know the difference in the four because they, they tell different stories. They have different perspectives on this, and then I love them all. But when I first started reading, man, I was like, am I ever going to get past this one story, you know? And so if you were going to begin to read the New Testament, you might, you know, uh, start with one of the, Gospels, and then move on maybe past the four Gospels, and maybe start in Acts, which is a book about uh, how the church got rolling and started, so, and then after, after the book of Acts is a book of history, you know, how the beginning of the church, very interesting book, uh, you can see the kind of church that we are to be in, in the book of Acts. And then after that, you would get into the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the different churches, Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians and those kind of things. And some of them are really short, but that's where a lot of the meat is, a lot of the good stuff that will change your life forever. So if you've never read a book of the Bible by yourself or whatever, I would advise you to go to somewhere like Ephesians. And read six pages. You could read it in 15 minutes and say, hey, I read a book of the Bible. Get you fired up. Now, I'm not saying speed read, understand, but I'm saying if you're going to, you know, if you never got started, get started somewhere. Does that make any sense? And then, at the, then you get some letters from uh, Peter and you get some from John and then you finally get to the end book of the Bible, which is called Revelations, which is a prophetic book telling about things to come. It, it talks a little bit about at churches at the time at the beginning, in the first three chapters, I think. But after that, you begin to uh, get into pro- prophetic things that are, that are to come, and a lot of symbolism, kind of uh, difficult to grasp a lot of it, even though I've read it oh so, countless times. I still don't understand it all, but every time I read it, I get a little bit more but a lot of that is in context with the rest of the Word, including the Old Testament. Did I say to anybody not to read the Old Testament? No, the Old Testament is just as much the Word of God as the New Testament. Uh, It's just, as a new believer, I would suggest you start and understand uh, grace and uh, saved by grace and love and the things Jesus taught and be well-grounded in that. And then when you go back and read the Old Testament, you'll begin to appreciate it all that much more. <laughs> and you can learn so much. I mean, you know my preaching, a lot of it is from Old Testament stories. Um, so there's, there's just just as much awesome things in the Old Testament, but if I, if I were a new believer, I would start in the New Testament. So uh, sometimes in the Old Testament, especially, especially you'll find sections just wrought with details you know what I mean details so and so begot so and so begot so and so begot so and so there were 12,000 and this and this and numbers after numbers and numbers and they were they went this far and you know and, and they, they turned to the left and then they went this many cubits and they went I mean it was just details after details and it's like ah you know why why is all that in there It's it's, it's like It it, it can be hard to read through. But my question is, why would somebody put so much detail in a book if it weren't true? Especially somebody who knew that this book would be scrutinized from top to bottom from the time it was written for hundreds of years, people wanting to stomp it out, wanting to find one of those details wrong to say, aha! So when I read, I read through the book of Numbers, for example, and it's like, Numbers after numbers of how many people and how many of this tribe and how many of this clan and how many of this, be, and, and read, but I love it. I love it. I read through every word of it. Every number, I'll read it out loud because it makes, gives me faith in the word of God to know that, man, it, and they, they can't disprove a, 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 a dot of a, a eye on here, you know? It's all true. So, it just gets me excited. Um, in 1861, a French academy gave 51 reasons why that, uh, they could prove that the Bible is inaccurate by their science, scientific methods or whatever. Guess what happened? All 51 have been proven false. You know? And that's just one example of people who have tried to prove the Bible wrong. There's people today... Out there, you know, the Bible's archaic, it's old, it's, it's not up to date with the times. Hey, the Bible told us that God sits above the circle of the earth long before men knew that the earth wasn't flat. God told us about quarantining people that were sick long before people knew what a germ was. The Bible has always proved itself true. And if somebody thinks today that they've found science that disproves the Bible, then it just proves that they hadn't uh, done their homework long enough because the Bible is true, always been true, always will be true. So let's take just a moment to talk about context. How do we read the Bible for all it's worth? Uh, The word context says the circumstances that form the setting for an event a statement, or an idea. So it's the circumstances, it's the setting. And the terms of which it can be fully understood or accessed. So it's setting in proper context. It's setting in a proper place so that you can get a a full view of a situation. If I was, you know, if there was an army coming and I was behind a hill and I couldn't see, I could hear them and I could guess how many it was, but I didn't have the full context. If I went up on the hill and got a a visual on the bogey, then I could say, it's 37 of them. They got 14 horses and six dogs, you know, whatever. And so I would have better context from which to to, uh, understand the situation. And that's the way we want to do. We want to read the Bible in context. Philippians 4.13 says what? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. As a new Christian, that was one of the first uh, scriptures that I memorized, that I I saw and I took hold of. And back then, man, we was preaching faith, you know, faith, faith. And and I said, man, I can do anything. I can do all things, man. I started thinking to myself, if I work up enough faith, I'm going to jump to the moon. (laughs) It's just, you know, crazy thoughts. I can do anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's nothing that can stop me. I just took a big overall view of it. But it wasn't until later that I read it in context. And, it, and before that, it was talking about I can, I've learned to be poor, I've learned to be rich, I've learned to, be, to abound, I've learned to be abased, I've learned to be full, I've learned to be hungry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So uh, in context, it wasn't saying you know that I'm a living miracle and, and I'm a superhero, it was just saying, I can learn to deal with all things. you know. I can, with Christ in me. Now, it may have some elements of, I can do all things. But in context, the greater understanding, along with the, what's before it and what is after it, you know, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is therefore? <laughs> right? Right? So He he says, this, 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 and therefore, you can do this. Well, hold on. Let's go back and see what that therefore is there, and why can I do this? And as Brother Gary was telling me the other day in a phone conversation, there's always our side. There's things that we have to do to activate the promises of God, and so to read things in context, you need to see what's before it, what's afterward, Um, who's speaking, So many scriptures taken out of context because we don't understand who's speaking and what from what reference are they speaking? What frame of mind are they in? Because the Bible, it doesn't hold back; it puts in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you don't want to just take all the ugly examples and say, "Well, it was in the Bible," right? A lot of people just, if you know, take everything literally. Um. I've seen people preach, uh, you know, using scriptures out of the book of Job that one of his friends, you know, said in the book of Job, somewhere in the first 38 chapters. And I read the book of Job, and I'm like, man, these guys are smart, you know. They're saying all these brilliant things. I'm like, I would probably be sitting there just amazed at all they were saying until that 38th chapter when God starts speaking and tells them how stupid they all are and they're all wrong, you know. And so if you're using those scriptures that those Job's comforters are telling him in one of your sermons just because it lines up with the message you're trying to preach, then you're preaching something that God already says is an error in another place. Isn't that right? So but just because it's in the Bible, you can't use it to suit what you're trying to say. It has to be in what? Context. David. David. Wrote the Psalms. A lot of those Psalms is like, I think I'm g- getting depressed. <laughs> David's like, Woe is me, God has forgotten me, He's left me to die, I'm, I'm perishing in this heat and this drought. And it's like, that doesn't sound like the positive confession my pastor teaches. You know, we're supposed to be saying good things, you know, we're supposed to have. Whatsoever things are lovely. How, and this guy's saying he wants to kill his enemies, and he, you know, he lived in a different time, you know. But, but usually towards the end of the, the psalm, he would pick it up and say, but my God. You know, and he'd say, but, you know. But a psalm is a song. You know, today, a Christian artist may write a song. He may put his feelings. He may be real with, with everybody about the way he feels, I think this book of Psalms is telling us that we can be real with God. We can tell God, I don't feel good about this, God. I know it's you, but I don't want to do it, to be honest. It's about being honest. And I think we've got to be careful, or we can take portions of the Bible and begin to say, well, he did it, I'll do it too. Or, or, Use that to preach and, and make your message? You see what I'm saying? Taking it out of context. Solomon, man, I recently wrote, read through the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's like, dude, come on. You're, are you even saved? Do you even believe in God? Just some of the things he says, it's like, It ain't no use of going on. It's all just smoke. You know, it's all just smoke and mirrors. You know, you get up and you die and it's over with. And it's like, golly, thanks for picking me up, Solomon. But in context, he's saying everything under the sun is like that, meaning that everything without Jesus is like that. If God wasn't here, if you didn't have Jesus, if you didn't have hope, then getting up in the morning and going through the same 40-hour uh, week and, and making this, paying the same bills and then dying and leaving everything to somebody else. And he, man, he's making me sad just thinking about all the things he says. But we're not like those without hope. We're not under the sun. We're in the sun, praise the Lord. So this is, I'm just giving you some examples of places in the Bible that you can't just take it. Word for word, I mean, what would you do? You just take something the devil said in the Bible and make a doctrine out of it, you know? The devil spoke in the Bible, you know? (laughs) So even if it is God speaking in the Bible, what dispensation of time under what covenant and to whom is he speaking? Because he might not be talking to you. I'm just trying to tell you how to read the Bible for all it's worth and read it in context. Can a Christian eat bacon? Most important question of the night, I know. Can a Christian eat bacon? Important question for most of us. If you read certain scriptures in the Old Testament... Under the Jewish dietary laws in the Old Covenant, you'd say, I'm not supposed to eat bacon. That's forbidden. God doesn't like it. But under the New Covenant, Mark 7, 19, Jesus says, food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through your stomach and then goes into the sewer. I didn't know, I went this way. (laughs) By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes, so a new covenant, new rules. It's a better covenant based on better promises. First Timothy one four says, "Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks, for we know that it is made acceptable by the word of God and prayer." So we're not held to the old custom old custom old testament Jewish dietary laws. Thank the Lord. We're no longer under the Old Covenant, uh, for, and that's good. In one respect, I think, you, you remember when the Gentiles began to get saved in the New Testament, and they were like, should we have them all circumcised? No. <laughs> I bet they were glad about that, right? They met, and God said, no, don't, you know, the only thing, we just don't have them eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and, you know, love people, and that kind of thing, but don't make them go back and get circumcised. That's, that's a Jewish It was a law written to the Jews. Amen? So our answer is often found in reading and applying logical rules of context. Where are you reading it? Who's saying it? In what context are they saying it? You see, the Word of God is wisdom. Man, if you can read it in context, we can keep ourselves from getting in so much error. Sometimes it helps to know what kind of culture they were talking about, you know, if you see something going on in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, to, to us their culture was different than the culture we live in. And it may not make sense. It talks a lot about slavery in the Bible, doesn't it? And we think, well, the way we see slavery, oh, that's the worst thing ever. But back then it was like indentured servants and stuff, and it wasn't, you know, necessarily mistreating people the way they we may have mistreated people here in America and the way we view slavery. So the culture is different. And so you have to get, you know, sometimes you, it may do good to do some research about where they're coming from with this idea, okay? Uh, concordances can be a, a big help. Sometimes you, you see the, what the Greek word means in the in Scripture, and it helps you to, to work out and get some better context. Uh, out of context, people can twist the Bible to say just about anything that they want to say, And that's where you get cults, that's where you get so so far in the era, that's why you have so many people today confessing Christians or or just simply wackadoo. You're like, who are these folks? Are they reading the same Bible that I am? You know, you had Jim Jones, what was that, back in the 70s or 80s? Started twisting the Word of God and got a big following, started out as semi-Christian, and next thing you know, he's telling people he's God. Has 900 people drink the poison Kool-Aid and kill themselves? Man, that was taking the scriptures out of context. Acts 20, verse 30 says, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Usually when people are taking scriptures out of context, they're trying, I'm not going to say it usually, but sometimes they're trying to do it to draw away people to themselves. They're, oh, I've got a new revelation. I've got this. And, and especially when you see people that are narrowly focused on one aspect of the gospel like I was talking about earlier. They're, trying, they're, they're, so, they're the expert in the field, and they're trying to draw away people after themselves. That's not good. We, we don't lead people to ourselves. We need to stay in context. We need to stay focused on love, stay focused on the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, and stay balanced, and we'll be okay. Amen? Amen. The devil quoted the Bible. You remember when he, he, he told Jesus to jump off you know, the Temple Mount? What, what did Jesus do? He straightened out the devil's context. He said, if if that's the way you read that scripture, you're all, fella. He used another scripture to help properly put that scripture, interpret that passage. Does that make sense? He said, it is also written, see, sometimes you need two or three witnesses in the Word of God. If you don't understand, look in other places in the Bible where it says, you know, something about that. If one of them just sticks out and doesn't make sense to you. One thing that I know helps me more than anything when I read the Word of God, I personally know the author. I know his heart. I know who he is. I love him. And uh, I can usually feel an incorrect interpretation because it's not his character. So it's like, you know, you study... The dollar bill, the $20 bill, so you'll know when a counterfeit passes. I studied Jesus, and I've studied him so long, and I know his character. I know how he's treated me in my personal life. It has a big impact about I know the spirit behind the interpretation, usually. So now let's talk about there's deeper truths to be had. About to run out of time. I don't guess we'll get finished tonight. Unless y'all want to stay a little late. Anyway... First, you won't understand the Bible at all unless you're born again. Anybody ever try to read the Bible before they were born again? Mm. I remember after I got born again. I I remember trying it a few times, but I don't remember much about it. But I remember after I got born again, I started looking at the Word of God, and it just started jumping off the page at me. It was like, what? I didn't know this was there. This is awesome. (laughs) But without possessing God's Spirit, you can't understand the spiritual truths of God in the first place. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are saved know it is the very power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolishness to them because they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. So this is a spiritual book. This is not just ink and, and white pages. This is spiritual. This... This is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive. It's quick. You know, so unspiritual people can't understand even the surface truths, Harley. You know, when Jesus would tell parables and stuff, they'd like, huh? You know, but it was those who were hungering to go deeper that he would explain, he would get in there and explain more to. Deep calls out to deep. If you're willing to go deep, God is willing to take you. Psalms 14, 2 says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. He's looking to see if you want to understand, if you're trying to seek him. Because for God's children, all the truths and the mysteries and the hidden things from long ago from the foundations of the world, they're open and available. But you've got to dig for them. He's not going to just throw his pearl before swine. But they're there for his children. Uh, One way the Bible hides things, but they're really there for those who look, is I noticed in types and shadows. You may have heard that term. You may not have. But the Bible uh, is full of types and shadows, things that you see in the Old Testament that are really pictures of things to come. Symbolism. Uh, a lot of symbolism and, and uh, hyperbole and, and those kind of things in the Bible. And a lot of that, you know, you have to, you have to really dig deep and, and put those things in context and really call on the Spirit within you. You see, the Holy Spirit within you is the one who will lead and guide you into all truth. And you can't do anything without him. So uh, a guy named John W. Rittenball... He gave me some advice on this I thought I'd share with you. When working with biblical symbolism or types and shadows, one must follow two cardinal rules. These are two cardinal rules for kind of trying to decipher these things. First, understand that several different symbols may represent the same reality in the Bible. For instance, the church is symbolized as a woman a building in which Christians are living stones, a human body of which Christ is the head, and a family of Christians that are brothers. So all those things represent the body of Christ. Be sure to check the context in which the symbol appears and, try not, and do not try to force a symbol where it does not fit. In other words, oh, man, it says about a fire here, man. I bet that means the church. <laughs> you, know, you know how you get, you know, you get, you're trying to interpret something man, that'd be cool, dude, you know? But not really, because if it doesn't represent the church in some other area in, in the Bible, you know, and there's not two or three witnesses on the thing, you might be, you know, just superimposing your own thoughts. Secondly, allow the Bible to interpret its own symbols. In Revelations 1.20, in the context of John's vision in Revelation, Christ explains the meaning of the seven stars and the seven lampstands. There's seven stars appear, and there's seven lampstands, seven golden lampstands. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, are the seven golden lampstands. Those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So he tells you what they are. <laughs> the meaning of the other symbols may be harder to locate, but usually the Bible explains itself to those who study it diligently. So don't superimpose too much of your own thoughts. Um, If you'll just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it and you keep studying, you keep digging it out, He'll he'll give you what you need to know. We should dig into the Word like a man seeking a hidden treasure. We should have a longing for the Word of God. We we could profess to be Christians, Jesus followers. Like I said, in John, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And who was made flesh and dwelt among us? It was Jesus. So this word is Jesus. We profess to love Jesus and not read the word. How does that work? Oh, I profess to love my wife, but she lives in California. I ain't seen her since 83, you know. (laughs) I love her though. Oh, love you, love you. Matthew 13:44 says, "The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven." In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. Man, when you find Jesus, you sell everything you own. Man, if I was stuck on a desert island and I could only take one thing with me, I guess it would, it would probably be a Bible. probably be a Bible. So how do we get started? Well, I gave you some suggestions on how to get started. Uh, If you hadn't read your Bible before, you know, read one of the Gospels. Start reading the book of Acts or maybe move a little bit past Acts and and start in Romans. Maybe Romans is a little too complicated. Go go somewhere easy. If you have never read the Bible, go somewhere uh, like Ephesians. I, I, I typically tell people Ephesians is a good book because it tells you who you are in Christ, gives you a, an idea of how to live your life for Christ, got basic teaching in there, t- tells you about what's happened to you spiritually since you gave your heart to Jesus. That'd be a good book for you to start with. And then just stay around in the New Testament, you know, read you one of the Gospels, see what Jesus did, see what Jesus says, you know. You get in Matthew over in the Beatitudes and chapters 5, 6, and 7, and you you hear Jesus preaching. You don't have to listen to some amateur like me. You can hear the real deal. I mean, I'm telling you, this Word of God, if you will give God something to work with, I tell my children, you know, read the Word of God. People say, I can't hear from God and don't know what God's will is for my life. Are you reading the Word of God? you 've got to give God something to work with i, I, I can 't guarantee for you, but I can almost guarantee for me that when I read the Word of God and something comes off the page at me, then sometime during that week he 's going to be speaking to me about that you know that 's where we get the messages that we teach and stuff here you know it 's from in the Word of God, sometimes it jumps up and says that 's where I want you to go Sunday or Wednesday or it 's during prayer time, but you 've got to give God some time you've got to give him uh, some dedication. You got to dig deep if you want the things of God. If you want to live a life where you become who you were created to be, you can't just live in the world and go to church on Sunday. Maybe see, I can tell that to the Wednesday night crowd. <laughs> but you're you're going to have to put him first. I know it. You know. You know. We we all preach. Yeah. 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 But are we doing it? You know. Uh, once you start, don't quit. Develop a plan that works for you. Uh, you don't have to. I read four chapters a day typically. One, and I, and and I've got a chapter going in the Old Testament. I've got a chapter going in in the the poetic books somewhere. I've got a chapter going in the Gospels, and I've got a chapter going in the New Testament. I try to get a smorgasbord of everything every day. And then when one of them finishes, I, I recycle it back in that same area. I, use, I read different translations. I'm always feeding on the Word of God. But whatever works for you. If you wanted to read, I, I, would, I bet God would rather you read one verse and meditate on it than read four chapters and just be trying to get through it real quick. Just to say you did it. One verse, one word is able to change your life if you will give God your heart in it. Does that make sense? So start and try to make a time every day. They say it takes like 21 days or something like that, to, 28 days to, to start a habit. You know, uh, I've been getting up about an hour earlier than I need to to see my son off to school every day so I can spend five minutes with him. I go in there, and I read him five minutes worth of Bible every day, trying to help him develop the habit that I'm telling you about, because it's that important. It's that important. I'm telling you, this is your lifeline. If you don't understand something, or even if you disagree with something you read, man, that... That wasn't what my mama told me, you know. Put it on the shelf. You ain't got to deal with it right now. You ain't got to throw it down, say, I'm not reading it no more. If you don't understand, or if you're reading and you're not get, you don't feel like you're getting, just keep reading. You know, God will let you be wrong for a time. It'll be okay. <laughs> and then ask him. Ask him the things that you don't know, because he's not afraid of your questions. He loves you to question. He, he loves David to be real, to say what he felt, You know, and to be honest with God. And God is, he's completely cool with that. I know there's times that I've said stuff that I regret and I go apologizing, but he never, you know, he never gives up on me because I ask him questions or, or, or I'm honest with him. So in closing, you'll find the Bible to be brutally honest. Man, there's the good and the bad and the ugly in there. The stories, he don't hide anything. You know, just when you thought... You know, everything was going to be all right for Lot. After God saved him out of Sodom. he goes and sleeps with his two daughters. So, you know, things in the Bible that you just like, w- what? Couldn't God have just left that out, you know? There's ugly things in the Bible. But all of those things in there are for our instruction because he don't want you to say, hey, this is a make-believe book. I could never attain to this. Boy, if you're worse off than anybody in the Bible, you're really bad, you know. I think there's some of the worst of the worst in the Bible, and there's some of the best of the best, but it's all honesty in between. And so you can see situations. It's all there for you to learn from. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. I like to be taught and do what's right, so I don't have to be corrected personally. Romans fifteen four says, "So whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we sh- through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope." See, it's full of hope. It's full of promise. It Get you back on course. Get you dreaming again. Get you thinking about heavenly things. Get you thinking on good things. Lead you to find out about Jesus' love and which will cure what's wrong with most of us. So what's wrong with most of us? We don't know how loved we are. We don't know how important we're God's masterpiece, Ephesians 210. We don't understand how loving and kind He really is. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It cuts right, to the th- it cuts right through our excuses <laughs> and our flesh, and it just gets down to the, and it's hard to take sometimes, but it's what you need. Truth is what will set us free. God is not interested in creating a bunch of PhDs in biblical puffetry. I made up that word. But, you know, it says knowledge puffeth up. And so we don't need a bunch of PhDs in biblical puffetry. We don't need people growing bigger in wisdom. We need people getting wisdom, changing, doing the word of God, and changing the world. Like James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Fooling yourselves, you know. So I had a pocket full of diamonds. And I go in there, you know, and I guess this is where you're supposed to cash in, you know like it's your casino or something. you got your chips. We didn't know we's kids, we was want to show everybody, and we both had a big handful. We slapped them down on the counter, and guess what? Oh, that's nice, kids, that's good. y'all found a lot. That's great, that's great. What they worth, what they worth? What? Oh, these are just what we call fool's diamonds. These are not real. They looked real. I mean they were what did they do? Go out there and throw a bunch of. Fake ones out just to get people to come? I don't know. What, what, I've never been in a field and found a bunch of fake diamonds before. What is that on the floor? No, it's not. No. But uh, you never stop hoping, you know. So none of them are real. And they said, why did I tell this story? I don't know. I don't know. Thank you, John. Jumping Johnny Gene. <laughs> no, I do know. Old wives' tales, like drink milk when you got an ulcer, make your life miserable. That stuff can kill you. That's what most of us are living by, what somebody told us before, what our parents, our grandparents said. How about we dig in and find what God said and settle it for our generations to come? Okay, and how about we dig in and we find what I found on that trip that I remember most? How my cousin Derek stuck by my side and loved me and gave up his day in the diamond mines just to be with me in that hotel room, that dreary little hotel room. It was. And he passed away about a year later in a car wreck, my best friend. But I remember that about him, how loving he was. And that's what you're going to find in the Word of God. You're going to find truth that's going to get you out in the fields And you're going to find the love of God. It's going to be the cure for whatever ails you. It's one book, one central theme. It's the love of God all the way through it. It's found in the face of Jesus. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Many don't think the Bible is relevant today. They're wrong. The Bible is more relevant than it's ever been. It's, we need it now more than we ever have before. We need to be studying. We need to be showing ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can tell somebody and get them saved because this thing is about to wrap up. Psalms 19.7. The instructions of the Lord are perfect. Reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy. Making wise The simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living, reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The law of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping for the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. The word of God has life-changing power. You just look around. Look at the people in this room tonight. When you come Sunday, look at the people, the lives that the Word of God is changing. I can't change anybody. A self-help program can't change anybody. There's no power in it, but there is power in the Word of God. Life change. This is life. This is, this is infused with the power of God. Dr. Adrian Rogers says it's a sword. It's a seed. It's bread for the hungry. It's a hammer. For the hard-headed. Because I remember how hard-headed I was, but somebody kept hitting me in the head with the hammer of God until it sunk in and changed my life forever. It saves the sinner. It sanctifies the saint. It's sufficient for the sufferer. It's everything we need it to be. Because this, my friends, is the love letter from Jesus. This is his heart for you. This is his will for you. This is his plan. This is his New Testament. This is his covenant. This, my friends, is the word of God. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. It's how you get saved. Trusting in the word of God. Father.